Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Here he says Engels, I think Robin, who knows um, a lot more about Cecil Rhodes than I do, will know, will correct, if, correct me if I get it wrong, but there's a famous Cecil Rhodes phrase about there's not a day where he doesn't wake up and thank God that he was born an Englishman. True. True, yes. Um, you want, that's it, and, and the lottery of life. So it's, um, it's a great pleasure. I've uh, been in discussion with Robin previously, um, what, nine months ago? Something like that. So there's a bit like the sort of dog and pony show or um, a circus, you know. I am the monkey and he is the organ grinder. Um, I don't perform, he does. Um, and of course we, we meet at a very appropriate moment because... Um, about a year ago, and the Sunday Times had a piece, if anyone saw this, um, from the poo thrower at UCT, um, writing about the, um, what started the removal of the Rhodes statue. So Rhodes has fallen at UCT, and um, Rhodes is still standing in Oxford at Oriel. And it's a treat for all of us that Robin Brown hasn't fallen, that um, he's not standing, but, but sitting here sitting here this morning. So let me start with a very obvious question, which is, given Rhodes' standing and stature, there are not a huge number of biographies of, of Rhodes, relatively speaking. And why, perhaps you could just tell us why you got interested in Rhodes and have produced this really excellent, enthralling, well-argued book. You didn't say that the last time. No, well, you know. <laughs> um, it's my sandwiches in the basket, by the way. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote this book, which took seven years minimum, nine if you take the whole length of time, because of the lady sitting in the front row here in the green outfit, um, or blue outfit, um, who gave me a copy of Lewis Mitchell's first biography of Rhodes. And in it, it's a very tedious book. It's like reading porridge. But in it, was this lovely little reference to the fact that Cecil Rhodes had formed a secret society at a very young age. I mean, he first started thinking about forming one. When he was in Kimberley, he, it was a small group that was only five people, but they were very influential. One was his banker, uh, another one was a local civil servant, and then there were three others, and they swore to be a secret society under very formal terms, they, they, they actually gave themselves a secret sign under which they would operate. It was the five diamonds on a card. And they called it the Brotherhood of the Diamond. Now that sat in Kimberley for all of that time. So I read the rest of this book, which is no great shakes at all, and it sticks with this thing. Then it tells me that Rhodes wrote his idea for a secret society in a document called The Confession of Faith, which he prepared when he took himself off to university. And it, it goes on. Now, there is very little, it has to be said, about things that the secret society did in South Africa. They just existed. Their intention was to further the empire. It was a straightforward empire society. 
What made it very unusual was the confession of faith which Rhodes wrote to describe it, which he left a copy of, a codicil, to his very first will. That declared what Rhodes's real ambitions were and basically they were to unite the world into the British Empire. Bill said Rhodes was obsessed with the idea, which he picked up from Ruskin at Oxford, that the best thing that could ever happen to anybody was that they should be British. And that to be British and to speak English was to have won the lottery of life. So most of the people out here have yet to get their tickets. So, you know, there's lots on sale and you can all go out and buy one if you like. One comes with the book. Secret Society, shall I go on with that? Secret Society exists behind the scenes in Africa until Cecil Rhodes, a young parliamentarian, by by this time he's come down from Oxford, he stands for the Barclay West seat, wins it, and immediately is asked to go on a settlement commission to fix up one of the Uh, I've got to be careful with phraseology, one of the African wars that are going around the country. And he goes off to Basutoland to fix that war. And there meets Gordon. Gordon of Khartoum falls completely for Gordon. And I do mean falls in every sense that that word can be interpreted. They are together for a week. They fall in love. That's what I'm saying. And Gordon asked Rhodes to become his partner. Uh, Fortunately, Rhodes decides no go, and very fortunately, because a year or so later, Gordon, of course, goes off to Khartoum, where he gets himself topped. But before that has happened, he has written a letter to a friend of his in England called Reggie Brett. And to Reggie Brett, he suggests we should set up a secret society in England. There is evidence of the letter arriving. There is no evidence that Brett actually got it, but ample background evidence because Brett was in constant correspondence, and that is provable with Gordon, right the way through the pursuit of land and the cartoon episodes. Brett takes it on from there. So the, the, the secret society has exported to England. How do we know it was the same idea that Rhodes had conceived and set up in South Africa? Because attached to the South African secret society and in the confession of faith was Rhodes's suggestion that the society should operate according to the rules of the Jesuits. And at the bottom of Gordon's letter to Reggie Brett is, I suggest we should operate the society to the rules of the Jesuits. I think I've got far enough on. Do you want to? Could I? I mean, one of, there's obviously the two big themes in this book. One is clearly the secret society yeah. and its various convolutions and contortions and, um, and the general idea of um, spreading the empire as the engine of progress around the world through which people can become prosperous, industrious, educated, live in 
square houses, leave their round ones behind, and um, become modern in a sense. And the other theme, of course, is Rhodes' sexuality, which you've touched on with, with Gordon. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. I mean, there was um, one of the more recent relatives, I think it was in the 70s, was Robert Rotberg's um, psycho, psycho history um, study of Rhodes. Um, and it's reviewed by David Canadine, who's a British historian. And Canadine, at the end of the review, which is quite a long piece in the London um, review of books, sort of raises this, and he says that there's an awful amount of time spent on whether or not Rhodes was homosexual, what his, what his um, sexual uh, leanings were. Um, but it sort of overlooks some other questions about Rhodes. I mean, if he was gay, does it matter? What matters is, was he mad? I couldn't agree with that more, actually. Let's take those, those two Let's points take, yes. in line, right? Mm, yes, First like of all, the, whether or not Rhodes was gay is probably the least well-kept secret in the world. He was so gay, it's ridiculous. I mean, he was, he was very much in the closet to start with, but he quickly came out of that when he got... Um, you know, rich and famous, he then started taking companions, what were called lambs, to England to these big social events and rapidly got himself into trouble. Best story I can think of is a lord in England who came up to him having shaken one of their hands and came up to Rhodes and said, Rose, you cannot bring these young, illiterate South African louts here to good company. And Rhodes said, you haven't seen the way he handles mules. <laughs> and that, that, that was it. And from that time on, Rhodes traveled continuously with homosexual companions. He lived um, for four years with a young man, um, names again, um, uh, who was uh, when he was in Kimberley, and of course he lived for 15 years thereafter with Jamison. Although there is an absolutely no evidence that the relationship with Jamison was actually sexual, but it was definitely homosexual because Jamison quite strongly saw off a couple of the women who were quite keen on getting married to Rhodes. Okay, what was mm, your yeah. next one? Madness. About whether he was mad. Oh, I mean, that was a Canadian thing. Madness you know. is absolutely mad. the thing. Yes. In my considered opinion, and judged in this day and age, I don't think that there would be any doubt that Rhodes would be seen as mad. Judged 115 years ago, when most of Britain thought that it was the best idea ever for the rest of the world to be ruled by Britain, I, it begins to go a bit dubious. In other words, was Rhodes just a massive imperialist? The mad bit is what's in the confession of faith because he calls for the reformation of the entire earth into one imperial federation. And by that I mean places like the two halves of ancient Greece, China, Japan, Asia, South America, and finally, he said, the one thing we've got to do, and everybody must work for this, is the reformation of America and Britain, a special relationship. Now, I mean, that was so observably impossible to achieve 
But if you go one step further than that, any effort to achieve that could have caused several very large and consistent wars. So in that sense, he got carried away. Was he in that sense very unusual as an imperial figure of the late 19th century? I mean, having these grandiose visions. There were imperialists you know, of, of, to equal Politically him. approved lunacy, so to speak. You know. <laughs> yes, 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 certainly yes. that. Uh, I don't think anybody yeah. rivaled um, um, Rhodes' mm. dreams. I, I have to say, and I'm not going to give you the topic or get on that hobby horse, that I have been asked to write a book which will follow up on this one because I was obliged to leave this one. Well, I had to leave it somewhere. And I left it with Churchill's election to Prime Ministership of England over Lord Halifax, who at the time was the favourite to be the Prime Minister to to succeed Chamberlain when Chamberlain fell off the log after Munich. I've since discovered that the secret society has gone on being an influential force in empire work and still does it right up to the present day. That's a large claim. Would you like to expand on that? Okay. After the war, in other words, after Churchill mm. had taken over, and after Churchill had seen off a lot of the um, uh, secret society people, the society by then was called the Round Table, and it was run by Milner, who had mm. been Rhodes' psychic in South Africa, and when he retired, had apparently retired from being a sort of proconsul, a senior civil servant had retired back to England to various commercial jobs. What was then revealed was, of course, that he was Rhodes' trustee, that he was running the Rhodes Trust, and he was going to administer the Rhodes Scholarship Programme. So, basically, he was there in that job to carry on from Rhodes. In about six years later, he'd got his act together, and he and a group known as his kindergarten who were young lads he'd brought out from very special Oxford colleges, mostly from all souls, to be civil servants he trained in South Africa. He then took them back and with them formed the Round Table. Round Table goes on being incredibly influential. I mean, uh, Milner, th there was a thing called the Monday Night Cabal, where the secret society actually plotted that Asquith had been long enough in prime as Prime Minister of England and had killed enough people in the First World War. They plotted at, at Bryanston Square, which will have relevance in just a second, um, to replace Asquith. It was literally a quiet coup. One of the candidates to be Prime Minister in their choice was Milner, Milner actually told this particular meeting that he didn't want to do the job because he didn't think he had enough public support given the strength of public opposition to what was going on at that time. And he proposed David Lloyd George. David Lloyd George got the job and history has it that of course David George, Lloyd George took over the war um, and ran it and 
did all the decision making. He didn't. Milner and the Secret Society did it. Two members, Curtis and Carr, who were Milner kindergartners and who came back with Milner, took over the running of a special committee which literally monitored every single thing that the Lloyd George government did. They were obviously in cahoots because we're traveling through now to the Second World War. They formed a group called the Appeasers. And the whole of the round table, with one exception, with the exception of their financial expert, Bob Brand, were appeasers. Carr made four separate visits to Hitler to try and do a peace treaty, and I've recently discovered that there was an actual plot. We have Swedish guests with us at the moment, and we've been talking nothing about the fact that um, um, R.A.B. Butler actually asked the Swedish government whether, he, uh, whether they would take a peace treaty to the Germans. And at that time, France had just been overcome. German, Germany was sitting on the, on the cliffs in Calais, and the British government, as was, went to see the Swiss, Swiss ambassador and asked him to put in this peace proposal. So this group did not stop in 1940. It still goes on and on today, and the most significant part of it is that it was set up and run, it set up and run Chatham House. Now, Chatham House, somebody from Chatham House is interviewed on political questions in the world one and two or three days a week in England. It's continuous as a think group. And Chatham House is actually a self-elected body. Did you know that mm. bit? No, no, I didn't know that. Nobody no, is elected okay. at Chatham House. They elect themselves. It is act, its actual name is the Royal Institute of International Affairs. There are at least 10 such institutes, all self-elected, around the world operating as we sit here. One of them is in Cape Town. Another one's in Australia. Another one's in India. It goes on and on and on. This is a network of influence which still exists to this day. I think one of the interesting themes in the book, I mean, is that affinity between Britain and Germany, which I think the reviews have not really fully brought out. I mean, they brought out other aspects, and I think it's actually fascinating. Um, you think of Mulder himself. Mulder was Anglo-German. And his mother was German. No, sorry, father. father was German. Um, and if you think of the First World War, I mean, the largest number of people who got honorary doctorates in Oxford in the year 1914, before August, were in fact German. Um, the largest number of visiting foreign hairdressers, waiters doing a gap year in Britain were in fact German. So one reason why the Christmas truce in 1914 worked so well was that the German soldiers spoke English. And so there was a natural conversation across the trenches on that fateful, poignant, sad day in 19, um, at the end of 1914. Um, but the idea, the, the idea that you know, England's natural ally is Germany, I mean, is something that Rhodes had entertained and was very widely, um, was very widely thought. I mean, the, the best thing actually is the English soldiers across the channel 
in the first part, in the early months of um, the First World War and arrive in France and then are slightly annoyed to find that they're fighting the Germans because they assume that you go to France to fight the French, who are, of course, England's traditional enemy, not Germany. No, well, I mean, again, Max and I have been discussing for the last three days the degree to which um, the British uh, approached the peace treaty and the way the French approached the peace treaty. And there was even a statement by uh, Lloyd George after all this shenaniganing had gone on, because everybody here knows that the so-called Versailles Agreement was judged by the entire British delegation, which very interestingly had a huge influence from uh, General Smuts, because Smuts and Churchill were very together at that time. This is even at the time of the First World War. And Smuts came over and he made a huge contribution to the Versailles Agreement. In fact, he, the South African delegation vetoed the peace talks and the terms that they were going to subject Germany to. But it goes on and on, this German stuff, mm. because Rhodes, actually, the very first Rhodes Scholarship Program was, was, was completely confined, A, to men, and B, to subjects of the British Empire. Uh, um, Rhodes went to see the Kaiser, who Britain seriously mm. loathed as a result of the Jamison raid and a letter which the Kaiser wrote to um, Kruger after the Jamison raid. Rhodes went to Germany, spoke to the Kaiser, came back to England and said, I want to make a special exception and we're going to have two German students as Rhodes scholars, which in turn had huge repercussions. Can I jump to the second Yes, no, please do. The two Rhodes Scholars were appointed from Germany, came over, did their courses. There were two who followed them in the following years. Then came the First World War, and during both wars, the Rhodes Scholarship Program switched off the clause which invited Germans, quite naturally. But the two Germans who were, um, had already got their scholarships, it turns out, were leading the German resistance. And both of them, one in particular, Adam van Trott, and another one called Leonard Molke, who had very heavy South African connections, actually led the fight to get the British government to agree to deal with the German army, the hierarchy of which, the very high up bits of which, wanted to get rid of Hitler. They, both these students failed to make an impression on the British government because the British government at that time thought that it actually was doing very well in making peace with Germany. There was at least, well, there was even a book written called afterwards called The Ten Guilty Men, which was about appeasers in England. And it was thought at that time that two-thirds of the British public were behind the appeasers rather than the other way around. They all operated out of a house called Clevedon, which was run by Nancy Astor and Waldorf Astor, 
Wardorf Astor was a primary member of the secret society, of Milner's secret society, the Round Table. He not only was a member, but he funded huge chunks of it and took over its chairmanship until his death for 10 years. So they were all in there doing this. And of course, sadly, the British didn't because they thought we can negotiate a peace with Hitler, these appeaser groups. They didn't support Moltke and Adam van Trott. And van Trott took part in the Schoffenberg bomb incident was caught and hanged in a very ugly fashion by Hitler. But, you know, it was German a long way through. And that went on and made severe complications for how the British government dealt with the South African government at the time of the Second World War. Because you all know that there was a time when South Africa was not going to fight with the Allies. And the secret society sent people over here, and there were loads and loads of talks. And finally, they smut said, I will agree to run a government which will actually fight with the Allies. And that's, of course, what happened. He was elected. He invented, a, I, I, I think, was it the Progressive Party? I can't, I can't remember the actual name of the party he led. But that's how Jan Smuts came to power here. Can I have one last, one last thing about, about Milner and Anglo-Germany? Um, I mean, I, I wondered, reading the book, and of, outside of reading this book, I've wondered often about uh, the relationship between, aside from, um, obviously, this working political relationship between Rhodes and Milner, um, what Rhodes would have made of Milner's interesting life, which, um, according to a new biography, a recent biography by J. Lee Thompson, it's quite sort of, you know, Rabelaisian and interesting. As Milner had his kindergarten and his coterie of young men from All Souls and Balliol and elsewhere, but he also had relationship with a large number of glamorous late Victorian actresses, yeah. um, including Eleanor Glynn. You know, the, this is just an excuse to recite this ditty about Eleanor Glynn and the tiger skin. You know that, you know that thing, you know. She appeared on stage with a tiger skin. Um, and got into trouble with the censors for some of the contortions she got up to on stage. And Milner paid her legal fees. I mean, Milner was one of her sort of patrons. And then there was that famous, the famous ditty about, you know, would you like to lie down on a tiger skin with Eleanor Glynn, or would you rather err with her on some other fur? <laughs> yeah, um, well... Um my wife is sitting here, so I'm not allowed to tell dirty stories about Rhodes, but there's a lot of them in the book. <laughs> um, uh, Milner. Milner, when you look at him from the beginning to the end, is a completely unreal character. I do have to say that Milner has caused me to believe that there might be a species of totally altruistic, civil servants that exist on this earth. The round table hierarchy, um, Carr and people like that, were almost monk-like in their devotion. They lived in, when they first set up, they all lived together in a single house in Johannesburg. When they went to England, they all shared accommodation. They were unreal 
in life. Um, Nancy Astor, who was a Virginian hooker, basically, came over and married Waldorf because he was the richest man in the world, even though she was just getting divorced from somebody who was turned out to be quite a nice man. And it was just that Nancy had difficulty with men and liquor and drinking and um, Catholics and Jews, and it went on and on. I mean, Nancy Astor was a distinctly disturbed person. But the round table was monk-like in its goodness. I can honestly say that knowing a great deal about that secret society, there's nothing that I could say was actually a malignant or a bad act. Now, the stuff they tried to do in some cases was so godlike that it didn't work. They, for example, were entirely behind the India Act, whereby Indian independence was discussed and finally put through. It took four years. It was a round tabler who was at the head of the big division that got it through. Churchill was opposed to it, and it was the actual reason why when Churchill got power, he decided to get rid of these guys, and he sent them off all over the world to diplomatic places. But they still kept on with all these theories. Now, the last thing from me, because we must be nearly out of time, um, is that did the, secret, did the secret society actually achieve the aims which Rhodes first laid down in the late 18th century? And, of course, the answer is no. Or is it? Did he get America and Britain to so combine that actually they formed a force which it became impossible for any force elsewhere in the world to stand against? The answer is yes. The Americans came in very reluctantly to both world wars. And as a result of American intervention, they won both world wars. And if you go on to take the Cold War into account, it was America and Britain standing together with Polaris, which kept the Cold War at bay. Now, this, for me, is the truly scary thought that that wild and mad confession actually has in watered down, changed. It was Lionel Curtis who actually invented the phrase Commonwealth. He changed the word empire to Commonwealth. So the influence of these guys has been enormous. And watch your back. It's still there now. There's, um, there's a very recent issue in the um, bulletin of the National Library um, of South Africa, a piece by um, Christopher Merritt on sort of roads today, an, an opinion piece. And um, he starts by uh, commenting on a biography of Rhodes published in 2005 by Paul Malam, who was then professor of history at Rhodes, the cult of Rhodes. Um, and oh no, no, not that. Oh, sorry, you're checking. Sorry, you're getting a cue from. You're getting a cue from your family. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Nosebeak, Nose of yes. course. Nosebeak has got a bit of a fight between me and Malam. Yeah, so Malam so says that in the, one of the conclusions of that book is that historical figures like Rhodes don't matter anymore. 
they've gone. You know, they're the kind of, they're the dust of history. Very interesting to sort of reflect on this. Um, 11 years later, where road seems to have risen again to fall in a sort of perverse kind of way. Um, and the other thing uh, that uh, Merritt, the author of this little piece says, which maybe Robin would like to comment on, is that he talks about Rhodes' mediocrity, that he was not intellectually gifted, um, that he wasn't even good at riding a horse. And he suggests that Rhodes himself would have no chance of winning a Rhodes scholarship because he didn't have the intellectual acumen to, to reach that level. Would you care to I would, on that? I would agree with every Indeed. single word of that, actually. I don't think Rhodes would have won a world uh, scholarship. Uh, he certainly was not. He was a lousy speaker. Um, his voice would go to falsetto levels when speaking. But Rhodes had this uncanny charisma. It extended across almost everything, because there's also great controversy about how he dealt with colored people. I go into that in this book, and there's a printed piece in the book of Rhodes' ideas on who should be a voter, which how, if you're a member of another race, and by the way, he regarded the Afrikaners as another race, uh, as well as Africans, and he lays out what the conditions are. And I have to say to you that they are not racist. But, and he also, the applause that, greet, that greeted him when he was buried in the Matopos by the Matabele was not faked. I was controller of television in Bulawayo for a number of years and I got to know the Matabele very well. They looked after all my babies. And you, could, you cannot make the Matabele do anything. They're a bit like Zulus, yeah. And that respect that they showed to Rhodes at the end was genuine. And it was because he, hugely bravely, went into the Matopos Mountains almost on his own with three or four people and negotiated and negotiated and negotiated until finally he put down that uprising. There's, um, th but there is a clear sense that Rhodes could make money like a few other people. I mean, that's one thing he certainly had in abundance, the capacity. Yes, I mean, there's that, you know, that famous moment uh, during the Anglo-Bood War in the Siege of Kimberley when there's a fight between Rhodes and Kekovic, the British commander, over the use of the heliograph, the sort of mirror signaling system, which Kekovic wanted to use for military purposes and which Rhodes wanted to use for his shared dealing, so that despite being, despite being trapped in this besieged town, he could continue to scoop up, um, scoop up acquisitions. Yes, yeah. Marvelous sort of moment, that. One of my new bits of discovery, through a study of uh, uh, Sir A. Bailey, who I think most people will have heard the name here, is that Rhodes seriously wasn't interested in money. There are several quotes by him where he says, I'm not interested in money, it's the game I'm interested in. And taking over Rhodesia was a seriously disastrous act for the first five years. They had to cut the police force in half. The British South Africa Company very nearly went bust. But Rhodes just kept pumping money in, going over to Britain, 
lying about how much gold they'd found because most of the gold had vanished by the time he got there. And all there really was was in ancient gold mines. And so and so. And even how rich he was. Even that turns out to be a bit of a fallacy because Rhodes was very casual about the gold discoveries on the rant. The, he, he was very into diamonds and his real money was made by the fact that he managed to amalgamate all of the mines of Kimberley. So the money pump that was Kimberley was Rhodes and it just spilt money and spilt more money. But the people that he got into with gold, people like Byte and Abe Bailey, made hugely more than, than Rhodes. And when, when Abe Bailey died, he was worth about, oh, I think 10 times the size of the estate of Rhodes. So, you know, Rhodes was sort of, it, it, yeah, it's hard to actually get a grip on what Rhodes was because he was all manner of things. I mean, can I tell the story about the university? Rhodes paid for his own um, uh, time at, at Oxford. He resolved at the age of 20, when he'd started to make money in Kimberley, but nothing very much. He and Rudd were actually making as much money out of selling ice cream as they were out of the claims that they owned at that stage. So Rhodes decides to drop Kimberley for a while and go off to Oxford. Now, when we say Rhodes wasn't intellectual, that's a relative term because Rhodes read a lot. He also paid for a set of books, which you can see at Gritzker, which for the life of me, I don't know why nobody has ever written a, a, the story of these books. They're Moroccan bound. They're are nearly 400 of them. There were once nearly 500 of them. They are not printed. They're actual typescripts. And Rhodes actually paid for every single one of them, not only to be typed, but to be translated. Yeah? So the guy was a reader, but he wasn't an intellectual. And the interesting thing, the point about the story is that what did he do when he got to Oxford? Nothing. He was a complete buffoon. He went racing and was nearly kicked out. He took a bag of diamonds in a little leather bag and would drop them in public so that people would comment on, oh, there's Rhodes with his diamonds. He, went, he, went, he became master of the local foxhounds and he joined the famous Bullingdon Club. So everybody's memory of Rhodes at Oxford is, is of, a, of a, a complete fall. But in fact, what he was doing was writing the Confession of Faith. So here you've got this chameleon person who, every time you look at him, has got a different sort of shape and a different kind of uniform on. Well, that's a masterly summing up of your subject. Yeah, we've, it means we've, I know nothing. Oh, well, of course, you know, chameleons. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've got about uh, 20 minutes. Uh, some of that time, Robin will be signing books, but we've certainly got time for questions and comments from the floor. Thank you. I want to ask, um, in your studies and your research, something about the relationship between Rhodes and Olaf Schreiner. Yes. Could you tell us about that, please? Thank you. Um, Olaf Schreiner is one of the best 
witnesses we have to the fact that Rhodes was gay. I know that comes as a bit of a surprise because Olive definitely pursued Rhodes. Yeah? But Olive had an interesting background herself, as you know. Do you? Yes, yeah. And she was definitely bisexual and constantly said that what she was after was Rhodes's mind because he was the only intelligent man in South Africa. What she was actually after was a bit of Rhodes' money to go off and write another book about the Afrikaner hinterland. Yeah. Uh, but she did fall for Rhodes's charisma. What brought it down was the fact that she got desperately cross with Rhodes spending all of his time with his men friends. And he virtually refused to, to talk politics with Olive. And they finally fell apart very seriously. You know the, the uh, little book that she wrote about Corporal Hacklett? Yeah. Uh, this, was, this was a kind of mythical hero figure in, 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 in the Rhodesian military. And Olive went to England with the manuscript and she found herself on the same boat as Rhodes. And she accused Ro that she went to the captain and said, they've burgled my cabin to try and get hold of the Corporal Hacklett manuscript. Because, and by the way, the man that, manu that copy was never seen again. She might have been right. Thank you. Um, thank you for coming. You can buy um, Robin's book, The Secret Society, at the back of the venue, and he will be available to sign your copy for you. Thank you.